highlight an aspect of how the Apostle Paul begins his letters in the New Testament, emphasizing two particular words closely connected to what it means to experience the Christian life, grace and peace. In his letter to the Galatians, he begins, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians begins like this, to the saints in Christ at Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Those words, grace and peace, are used to welcome Christians hearing the book of Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Philippians, Galatians and uh, Colossians, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, the book of Titus, and the book of Philemon. For, For those of you who like to get into the debate of whether the book of Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul, there is no such use of the language grace and peace in its greeting, which is maybe a reason to doubt Paul's authorship. As Paul consistently greets Christians, like you and I say, hello, how are you? He welcomes them with greetings of grace and peace. The welcome of grace means in a world where individuals are oftentimes valued based on their status, their their socioeconomic disposition, their ethnic background, the color of their skin, whether they are a man or a woman, when they're valued based on what they have done or what they have accomplished and what sins and behaviors they have been able to avoid. Paul is saying such characteristics do not ultimately matter. In Christ, you are delighted in. Your God and his people have great joy in knowing you. You are favored, you are loved, you are valued, and you are worthy before the Lord. And that is not based on anything you have done or what you bring to the Christian family. The greeting of peace means that in a world overshadowed by things like conflict and chaos and confusion and complaints and division and wars, Christians are welcomed into a state of calm and relational harmony and oneness. Conflict with God, conflict with Satan, conflict with others, the cross of Christ has conquered all of that and God's reign of peace has begun. So since the beginning of the year, we've been in a series we call Relationships Reformed. To engage this series, we've been exploring the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians, to reflect on challenges we encounter in earthly relationships and to consider how the gospel reforms those relationships. This morning, as we come to verse 15, we encounter this word, peace. It is a verse explaining how peace is intended to mark the relationships Christians have with others and with one another. I'm going to reread that verse, but for those of you that have a Bible or a Bible app, rather than simply listen, I encourage you to open God's word up to best follow along. 
And if you're with us this morning and, and you don't have a Bible and you want one to use or to take home, we have them at our welcome table and we'd invite you to take one. So here's what verse 15 says. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Okay, so with the sermons we preach, we often explore what we call a big idea or a primary theme. Instead of a big idea this morning, in working to understand and apply this passage, I want us to ask a question. I want us to wrestle with, will you let the peace of Christ rule your heart? Now we're going to explore more what this means, but but the contrast, the contrast would be to let things like complaints or frustrations or unmet expectations or misunderstandings or ways you experience division and strife in relationship to rule your heart. Now, as Pastor Chris has said, the you in Colossians isn't just you as an individual. It's, it's addressed to a group. It's us. And so we also need to consider, will we let the peace of Christ rule our hearts? When we encounter conflict within the church, when we encounter strife within a gospel community, when we, when we come upon complaints and grievances and personal preferences and doctrinal divisions, will those serve to separate us? To help us think through how we might answer this question, I, I want to probe some ways that Christians experience conflict. I mean, some of these you will resonate with as they are very much part of your life in the Midwest, in Nebraska. But some of these you may not, but they are very much a part of the Christian experience throughout the globe and throughout time. In thinking through these various types of conflict, how would you respond? Would you be prone to have the peace of Christ rule your heart? Or would you be prone to have aspects of the conflict rule your heart? Conflict with creation. The temperature falls below freezing, way below freezing. And because of a rolling blackout or not having a working heater, the pipes in your home freeze and eventually fail, and they burst, creating all sorts of damage and destruction. Conflicts with governments that oppose Christianity. You're an individual facing persecution because of your Christian faith in a place like North Korea or Afghanistan or Somalia or Sudan. In these places when you show up at a gathering of Christians or if there was someone in your community that knows you are a Christian, that could result in your family being torn apart. You or your spouse or one of your children could be sent to an internment camp or punished and beaten for the faith you profess. What about conflict with your work, how you provide for your family, when you might be facing the loss of a job or a reduction in pay, when, when someone in the workplace accuses you of doing something wrong? 
What about conflict with others who oppose your personal convictions or preferences? The political party you affiliate with. The, the ways you choose to raise your kids. Your view of marriage. What about conflict with others in the church? When a spiritual leader, someone you look up to, you have used their teachings to bolster your faith, is found to have been a fraud. Or what about conflict within your family? You and your siblings disagree. Your father or mother doesn't understand you. A husband or wife has said hurtful things that has caused significant pain. In these types of situations, will you let the peace of Christ rule your heart? To explore how we might answer such a question and what it means for the peace of Christ to rule our hearts, I want to define the peace of Christ. When Paul uses this language, what does he mean? What is he getting at? And I want, to, I want us to understand how the peace of Christ rules hearts. What does it mean for that peace to be applied to how we live our lives? So let's begin and define the peace of Christ. The Apostle Paul's use of the language peace of Christ in verse 15 can also be phrased peace from Christ or peace produced by Christ or peace given by Christ. It is a peace derived from a person, the person of Christ. It is a peace experienced regardless of circumstance or whatever crisis we encounter. I know when many of us think of peace, we tend to think in psychological terms, being free from stress and tension. A textbook definition of peace is freedom from disturbance or experiencing tranquility. The word Paul is using here is shalom which does not necessarily exclude the psychological meaning, but but it's more referring to a state of being. In verse 15, Paul is linking the peace of Christ with a state of being of being called into one body. So Paul is describing a state of being that reflects relational harmony, wholeness, and unity. There is this intimate connection between the peace of Christ and the oneness of God's people. You cannot have one without the other. You do not have peace living a solo Christian life. And you do not have unity with God's people without experiencing peace from Christ. Only as we experience unity with God's people, as we are caught up in what it means that we are part of one body, do we share in peace. Okay, the New International Version of the Bible and other translations will use this type of language to describe this connection. Since as members of one body, you are called to peace. Because Paul is linking oneness, relational harmony, and unity with peace, let's consider a moment the language he uses as he greets Christians in his letters. Perhaps we could consider what he says this way. Grace and unity to you. Grace and relational harmony to you. Grace to you and oneness 
from God our Father. We could also reconsider when Christians gather and extend the passing of peace, we are communicating oneness, unity, and relational harmony. And so holding to this meaning during times of social distancing, the practice can seem shallow and hollow or less than what we were saved into. We're, we're over, the, over a live stream in an auditorium where we're maintaining barriers, we're experiencing walls rather than oneness. So this biblical understanding of peace encompassing both unity with God and unity with his people is taken up elsewhere in Paul's letter, specifically his letter to the Ephesians. Let me read from chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility, put the hostility to death. So Paul is describing in this passage the differences between a former state of being and a new state of being for the Christian. To describe this former state of being, Paul emphasizes separation, alienation, hostility, distance, and division. You who were far away. Because of sin, there was a chasm that existed between us and God that was impossible for us to cross. We were separated from him. And in our relationships with others, we experienced division as well. In such a state, in this former state, we were destined to experience the wrath and hostility of God. We were destined to continue to reject God's rule and reign and experience strife related to that rebellion. We were destined for differences to cause division and strife with one another. But in our new state of being, The blood of Christ has filled the chasm that separated us from God. And in covering us and cleansing us, we now share the same blood. While the cross was used to break down the body of Christ, it served to unite us as his people. The cross of Christ destroyed what caused hostility and division, and it united diverse Christians throughout time and throughout the globe as one family. A new man, Paul says. This is why to experience unity and peace is linked to what it means to be reconciled to God. Now, some things in this Ephesians passage, it's specifically pertaining to how the gospel united two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, and how the Jewish traditions and laws had erected barriers between those two groups. 
Getting into those details is beyond the scope of this sermon. Ultimately, Paul is declaring how because of the cross, those two groups of people became one. In the Colossians passage, Paul actually identified more than two groups. If we back up a few verses to verse 11, he said, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. Paul is declaring how Christ, in being our peace, abolishes the walls and barriers that have been erected to distance and divide people. So Paul finishes verse 15 with the language, and be thankful. So in addition to there being a connection between peace and unity, as one experiences this peace of Christ, this peace from Christ, as someone experiences unity and wholeness with God's people, a byproduct is gratitude. In this new state of being, when the peace of Christ rules our hearts, it produces thankfulness. Thankfulness to no longer be separated from God and thankfulness that we are no longer separated from others. But instead, we have been united into one family. Will you let the peace of Christ rule your heart? So false forms of peace will de-emphasize or dismiss the need for unity with God or the need for unity with his people, maybe even both. And the false forms of peace will typically emphasize finding peace in circumstances or situations. Prophets identified in the Old Testament were sometimes prone to declare a phony or hollow type of peace. In the book of Jeremiah, as God's people experienced conflict with God, conflict with another people group, the Babylonians, even conflict with one another, the Lord, by way of his prophet, exposes their fraudulent forms of peace. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practiced deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. The false prophets, they saw a people experiencing pain related to relational conflict. Like I said, conflict with God, conflict with another people group, the Babylonians, even conflict with one another. And to address their pain, they pronounced peace. They promised that all would be well, offering hope that real peace didn't require reconciliation with God or unity with him. Real peace had nothing to do with this relationship with the Lord. In so doing, they missed the mark. They treated the symptoms of a disease, but they failed to address the cause. In this case, what the prophets were doing was ignoring sins of greed and deceit and the seeking of personal prosperity. Much like the gospel of tolerance 
is today. They were saying that we will have peace, excuse me, much like the gospel of tolerance is today, where we say we can have peace if we just tolerate one another. Their message was deficient in declaring the need for reconciliation to happen with God. And so it facilitated further rebellion. It facilitated further sin, and it facilitated future conflict with one another. So it was a, it was a couple years ago. Um, some of you know this about me. I am highly allergic to poison ivy. Uh, I mean, if someone in the room has had a reaction and is scratching their poison ivy, and I'm, I'm like five feet within the range of that person, I'm liable to get it, to have spots show up, up when I get home, and I just want to scratch, and then they spread all over my body. Some of you experience that same type of thing, and, and you know what I'm talking about. So a couple years ago, I thought I had an allergic reaction like this to chiggers. Um, we'd been outdoors, I think, camping, and I figured they had crawled on me, and they had gotten into those less honorable parts worthy of greater covering the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I started itching, and it just wouldn't go away. So I took oral steroids. Um, I used steroid creams. Eventually what happened is I ended up going to an allergist, and what an allergist does is they put these patches on your back to determine what you're allergic to. Well, I found out I was allergic to a number of things, um, but the thing that was most pronounced was something called propylene glycol. Now, if you, if you know what propylene glycol is, you know it's pretty much found in every household product in your home. Laundry detergent, dishwashing detergent, toothpaste, hand soap, deodorant, hand sanitizer, and it's pretty much in every brand. And it is a key ingredient in steroid cream. What I was using to treat the infection, while it gave a temporary relief of the itch, it was actually causing more of a reaction. So we stopped using that steroid cream. And there was another thing that happened. You know, the laundry detergent we used to clean our clothes also contained propylene glycol. Well, there's one type of common detergent, fortunately, an era product. Thankfully, it's not more expensive. That does not con contain propylene glycol. When we used that detergent, when I stopped using the steroid cream, within a few days, I no longer needed to scratch my back or my arms or my parts worthy of covering. My body was at peace. Pursuing peace or pronouncing peace that dismisses the need to be united with God or dismisses the need for God's people to be united with one another that emphasizes peace by changing circumstances is deficient. It misses the cause of what causes, it misses the cause of why we experience strife and tension. Because the cross of Christ, it transcends circumstances. I don't just have to get some peace and quiet. In Christ, I am in a state of calm. 
Such a proclamation is countercultural. Let's think about uh, let's think about a hot button issue for a moment today, like how we address gender dysphoria or gender confusion. These are men experiencing feelings of confusion about being a man, or, or women experiencing feelings of confusion about being a woman. Cultural counsel is to change circumstances. If you are a man and you feel like a woman, become a woman. If you are a woman and you feel like a man, become a man. Now, I know many in the church are rightly concerned with such counsel. But this pronouncing of to change circumstances, to pursue peace, it is sometimes part of our counsel too. When someone experiences relational tension with others, or tension with a job, or tension with a neighbor, or has difficulty in the church with a particular preaching style or type of music, or maybe struggles with a theological position, what does our counsel tend to be? Go to a different church. Seek out a different gospel community. Distance yourself from the relational tension. Change your circumstance. That is how you experience peace. When we are prone to divide and distance, when we might say that we are at peace with God while dismissing unity with his people, when that happens, something other than the peace of Christ is ruling our hearts. Will you let the peace of Christ rule your heart? So let's understand how the peace of Christ rules hearts. Paul says, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule in your hearts. So in Christ, a new state of being, to which you were called, you have been given the gift of peace. You have been reconciled to God and united with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is what you were called into. That means it's not something you earn. It's not something you strive for or build a knowledge of. When you're a Christian, you have been given it. So first thing, to let the peace of Christ rule your heart, you must be a Christian. If what you worship is something other than Christ... The peace of Christ will not rule your heart. You have not been reconciled to God. And so you can expect conflict and challenge and hostility to rule your relationships with others, to rule your relationships with creation, and to, to rule your most intimate of relationships. You may find temporary peace or circumstantial peace or a phony peace proclaimed by the prophets like in the book of Jer Jeremiah, but internally, strife will rule and reign. Now, of course, following Christ, it does lead to a sort of division with the world. Jesus said as much when he told his disciples, do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. This means when, when you are a Christian, you will experience a clashing of values with non-Christians that will sometimes feel 
like war. Non-Christians do not worship the same things. So you are prone to experience earthly conflict when those types of things clash with those who worship earthly things like power and comfort and false peace. At the same time, while the Christian may not experience peace with earthly things or peace with the world, they will experience the peace of Christ. The the peace Jesus referred to in John 14 during one of his final conversations with his disciples. Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. The peace, the the state of being that Jesus has with God his Father, that perfect unity, that oneness, and that unity that Jesus experiences with his people, when you are his disciple, it is given to you. You are reconciled to God and you are reconciled to others. There is a perfect unity that exists that can never be broken. And while the peace of Christ is not so much a psychological state of mind, Jesus says it has psychological benefits. It alleviates fears. It alleviates troubles. And it alleviates stress that you carry in your heart. So if you're with us this morning, either in the room or on the live stream, even if you're listening to this sermon days or weeks or years from now, and if you don't know what it means to be in Christ, if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, please reach out to me or Pastor Chris or a gospel community leader. We would love the opportunity to meet over a cup of coffee or have lunch to talk about the good news of the gospel and to talk about what it means to be at peace with God and united with his people. So first thing, for the peace of Christ to rule our hearts, we must have the peace of Christ. We must be a Christian. But just because we are a Christian and have been given the peace of Christ, apparently, by nature of the Apostle Paul's instruction, that does not mean the peace of Christ rules our hearts. We have to let it rule. The exact language here, it's a bit of an athletic term. It means to umpire or to be an arbiter. Christians have a choice to let their hearts be ruled and governed by the peace of Christ, this reality that they have been reconciled to God and united with one another, or to be ruled and governed by something else. So scientists tell us natural responses to conflict are what is known as fight or flight. When safety or personal comfort or peace of mind is threatened, an individual reacts in a, in a way to regain that prior state. A, a moment someone responds to conflict by fighting is when someone asserts self. They attack whatever might be threatening their peace of mind or safety or comfort. They make their rights or objections or positions known. 
a moment someone responds to conflict by fleeing is when someone perceives a threat to be bigger or stronger than self. So they hide and withdraw in order to preserve safety or peace or comfort. These responses to conflict, fight or flight, they've been characteristic responses of men and women ever since the fall. Let me read from Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam and Eve, they want nothing to do with a bigger, stronger being. When they hear God approach, they flee. They hide behind fig leaves. And when given the opportunity to be honest, Adam doesn't acknowledge or take responsibility for his behavior. This is a classic response of avoiding conflict, withdrawing, running to a place of perceived safety seeking an earthly form of peace while dismissing the need for an eternal type of peace. The text continues. Then he, God, asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. When God invites Adam into deeper conversation, Adam senses an opportunity to attack. He blames God for putting him with Eve. It's his fault. In doing so, he also declares conflict with Eve, saying he is the victim of her poor choices. As you think about conflict, strife, division, hostility, relational anxiety, and relational frustration in everyday life, in what ways are you prone to respond? Are you more prone to attack assuming motives, accusing others, blaming them? Do you you step into fights so that others know you are right and they are wrong? Do you use words to divide rather than to invite dialogue to work towards oneness? Or are you more prone to avoid? Do you complain about others behind their back? Do you play the victim? Do you justify and rationalize how they are wrong and you are right? Do you lack courage to have honest and real dialogue and conversation? Do you escape to things like video games or Netflix or comfort eating to feel better in the midst of relational tension? What happens when you engage people with differing viewpoints, differing viewpoints on education, differing viewpoints on the role of government in the lives of people, or differing viewpoints on how Christians should engage in dating relationships or social media involvement? What happens 
when you are confronted with groups that possess differing theological positions about the role of men and women in the church, or the end times, or how to baptize, or how people become Christians. What happens when you experience relational tension? When others let you down, when they say something hurtful, when they are not present in moments of pain, when they do not meet your expectations. So purchasing and videoing, viewing cable TV, it is not a a normal part of life at the Gardner house. It's kind of expensive. We don't watch it all that often. So it's uh, with limited resources, it is one way we are good stewards. Contrary to what I sometimes hear, broadcast TV, network TV, is still free. You don't need cable TV to watch the Super Bowl or the Olympics, or at least what is on uh, NBC. But this choice of not having cable, it changes during certain athletic seasons. My son Josh and I, in particular, we enjoy watching college football, Husker football. I mean, I guess we're looking to be disappointed and depressed. And because Fox and ABC do not broadcast the games of a second or third tier program very often to watch Husker games, we need to get the Big Ten Network and Fox Sports. So this year, our um, purchase of cable didn't stop when the college football season ended because I have a few special ladies who love to watch Husker volleyball. And because of the pandemic, volleyball season was postponed to the spring. Now, one of the byproducts of having cable, Michelle will tell you, I love movies, so I'm able to watch movies a bit more often. And this, this month, there was one that caught my eye as it relates to this topic of conflict. The Revenant is the story of a French-Canadian fur trader, Hugh Glass, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. The the movie, which is not for the faint of heart, is based on a true story about Glass's survival in a moment of crisis on the western frontier in the 1800s. Throughout the movie, themes of conflict are on display. Conflict with others. The group of fur traders is attacked by a tribe of Native Americans seeking to avenge lost lives and purged property. In that attack, they experience heavy losses and only 10 of the 45 men escape to travel downriver on a boat. Conflict with creation. Glass is mauled by a grizzly bear, the encounter resulting in his body being severely beaten and bruised. But the climax of the relational tension in the movie, I think, occurs when one of the ten men within the group becomes a source of division and deceit and dishonesty. He accuses others of character flaws. He undermines authority figures and authority structures. He eventually abandons his commitments to care for and support others. As Glass recounts what he experiences later, he says... My my men, my men abandoned me. 
The vast majority of us expect conflict to occur, within, to occur with other groups. I mean, Republicans battle Democrats. Nations battle with other nations. Groups of people who have less power battle those who are in, have more power. In my own profession, groups of people like physical therapists battle at the legislative level, at least, with athletic trainers or chiropractors over scope of practice issues. Or we battle with Medicare uh, as they work to decrease financial reimbursement. Conflict from one group to the next is expected in a fallen world. And so is conflict with creation. I mean, snowstorms, hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, forest fires, hail. We expect these types of conflict. But when it occurs within a group, within our church, or within your gospel community, it's like a death blow. It causes deep pain. In such moments of conflict, the church is filled with brothers and sisters who rather than letting the peace of Christ rule their hearts, they fight with and they flee from one another. We allow personal positions to divide us. We allow the personal pain we experience. Pain of not being as gifted of a teacher or the pain of not being as gifted as someone who engages others well, or the pain of having been criticized or critiqued by others, or the pain of not having children, or the pain of being left out, or the pain of having an offense being committed against us, create barriers and walls. When encountering such situations, some of us fight, we're ready to attack, but more often we avoid. We distance ourselves from others. We withdraw. Our pain rules our hearts rather than the peace of Christ. When you experience relational strife with others, how will you respond? I was talking to a friend recently and he was sharing about a disagreement he had with one of the ways that I have led this past season. Now, some of you might think this is you. I have lots of these conversations. It's not you. I guess it might be one of you. In that moment when someone disagrees with how I have led or how I lead, my heart sinks. My, my stomach churns. I hate disappointing people. I dislike conflict in relationships. I want us all to get along and be happy. And so typically my, my first response to conflict is flight. I withdraw. But, but those who are closest to me know that if I'm provoked enough, I move from avoiding to attacking. As he described what he disagreed with, I, I was getting flustered and frustrated. I wanted to fight. I didn't care about my brother, the unity we experience in Christ. I wanted to prove to him why he was wrong and why I was right. And I didn't care if that caused division and strife between him and I. In letting the peace of Christ rule our hearts, the ways in which we have been reconciled to God, the ways in which we have been united with one another, that state of being it is the umpire. 
It has the final say. The gospel of peace, our reconciliation with God, the ways in which he is restoring our relationships with creation, how he unites his people as one regardless of differences, it has to mean something to us. And that means that doctrinal divisions, party affiliations, the color of our skin, our cultural backgrounds, our positions on a variety of issues, our personal pain, the way we disappoint one another, misunderstandings in Christ, those things do not divide. They do not lead us to distance ourselves from one another. Too often, the church has not let the peace of Christ rule our hearts. Paul is saying, in these moments where conflict with others and conflict with creation is on display, let the peace that we have in Christ, the unity that we have in Christ, let that rule our hearts.